Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. So you're about to commence this journey into the heart of darkness, into the mind and world of Christian Bruckner, where he's come from and what made him. How did that journey commence? Well, it's fairly obvious, Donald. I had to go to Germany. I had to go right back to the source, deep in to understand who Christian Bruckner was. I mean, first things first, he's not Christian Bruckner. He's actually a guy called Christian Fisher. He was born uh, Christian Fisher in, in December 1976, born into quite a sad household, as you'd probably imagine. And he was adopted then at three years old. We have to sort of understand that this was quite a messy household. You know, he was born into, into a place called Würzburg in Germany, quite a sort of medium-sized industrial town. By all accounts, the German press have published that the father may have been a criminal and he certainly wasn't a happy start to life. He was born into a home in which you know for certain social services were involved. So it seems that social service, the state, must have taken the children away from this dysfunctional home. He was put into care and then adopted. Those first three years for any child are the formative years about attachment and about engagement. So even though his own memory of those three years would be scant, pathological minds are formed in those crucial three years. Well, yeah, I know that myself because being adopted, so I know how important it is in understanding those early years. And he was taken over by social services and was handed over to a German charity called Diakoni. Diakoni is a very big church charity in Germany, right right around the country. And it perseveres to this day they actually pay money to families to take children on. In Germany, as I understand it then, the family that adopted him, who lived in a village called Bergtheim, they actually got paid, I believe, 1,000 to 1,500 a month per child to take these children in, to adopt them, to give them homes. They were obviously in orphanages, and the idea was to get them out into homes in the community. So Christian was adopted at three years old by this rather unusual couple in this rather, well, actually quite attractive village, really. In Germany, in terms of where that town is, just give it a geographical sense. It's basically an area sort of central west Germany, broadly halfway between Munich and Berlin. It's an attractive area, very sort of rural area. Basically, Fritz and Bridget Bruckner were paid, I believe, anything from three to 4,000 or even perhaps a bit more to take in three boys. So they took in, Christian had two brothers, so there were three of them living in the village and no one's actually managed to find his brothers. I think one was older and one was younger. Two of them may have been older. What was certain is that they grew up in this village and they they definitely didn't have a nice upbringing. They were treated pretty brutally by their parents. They were disciplined pretty hard. Christian himself told social workers it wasn't a happy childhood. They were hit hard by the father, disciplined with a belt. They were locked in rooms when they were bad. They were locked in rooms without food, without drinks. They were not even given a glass of water, which was one of the things that came out of a very interesting interview. I believe Christian in the house in this little village may well have been locked in the cellar, which is why it comes this obsession with cellars. As you follow it through, you'll notice he has this very interested sort of obsession with underground spaces. And in the house that he was adopted into, which, by the way, is a really rather attractive house, Donald. It's a sort of three, four story German turn of the century. I mean, you know, 19th century property with it had a kind of portico above the front door with an angel in it and pitch roof and rather attractive property in this rather old village. And 
And downstairs, there was this basement. It's now divided into four flats, but back then it was a house. I think the boys were not treated well. And one can surmise what else happened to the boys. He was abused in various ways. We don't know exactly to what extent, but they definitely weren't treated well. It is really instructive in helping us to kind of provide a roadmap to what built this monster that ended up being Christian Bruckner. Where else does his obsession about dark spaces, because children normally run the other way from dark spaces. And yet here was a child and now a young adult who seems to be obsessed by those enclosed spaces. Donald, we can only really surmise about the cellar. And I went down into the cellar actually because it was, the door was open. I actually spoke to a couple of tenants who lived in that uh, house now. I was able to go down into the cellar and get some photos in the cellar. It's quite a dark, dingy place. And I can imagine it being pretty horrible to be locked down there for a day. And that was apparently where he was locked up. And I imagine he formulated ideas while down there. There were some slit windows. He could have looked out on the streets. Maybe that's where his fetish began or his passions, his mind. He started to dream or make ideas up. Maybe he got comfortable down there. Maybe he sometimes voluntarily went down there to escape his parents, to hide. We don't know that, do we? What was the floor? Was it concrete? Were the walls? Were they brick? It's a brick cellar, quite steep stairs. And it divides off in two sides. And he went down. It had this very rather attractive arch ceiling. You can imagine renovating, having a fantastic wine cellar done. You put your wine collection down there. On the face of it, it didn't look bad, but you can imagine being locked down there would have been a whole different thing. But I should point out that talking to former neighbours of Christian and his family, that he and his brothers, they ran wild in this village. As one woman said to me, there's always one bad family in every village, isn't there? And this is a village of 3,800 people. And there was indeed one bad family. And this was it. And these boys, they used to go around lighting fires, vandalising, you know, the school. They used to steal cigarettes from vending machines and do all sorts of things, graffitiing. And, and I think that it was written on the wall what was going to happen here. So we knew and understood there's a pattern here. It plays out and they're going to be involved in crime. They're going to be involved in dysfunctionality. They're going to have some empathy problems, relationship attachment problems. How do we think this impacted upon his early years in primary school? And when did the school authorities become very concerned? At the school, he found it difficult to socialise with other kids. A couple of his former classmates described him as a problem child and, and he had a big chip in his shoulder. And there's no doubt that the school early early on had a, their eyes on him and knew that he, he was kind of up to no good. And I think they probably tried very hard to keep him on the straight and narrow. The father disciplined the boys very heavily. They weren't their children, let's not forget. So whether he didn't like his children, but he disciplined them heavily. Now, when he got into a car accident, when Christian was about 13 or 14, he was then in a wheelchair and it was very seriously injured. And the mother just could not deal with these boys. And so I'm guessing Christian was 13, 14. His brothers were 15, 16. It just got a lot worse and it caused a lot of problems for the village. And it was decided we can no longer look after these boys. And I don't know whether the brothers as well, but certainly Christian was then sent back to the same charity in Würzburg, Diaconi Charity. And they, the mother just said, sorry, you, you know, you're going back here. So that would have been a massive, massive kick in the teeth for him, I guess. This is a catalogue of rejection and dysfunctionality, which would send lots of kids off the rails to a huge degree. But still, nothing stands out, or maybe the collective, to create this monster, this, this perpetrator. The rejection thing is obviously majorly important. And I think that's something I need to study more, and I, I intend to go back to Germany and have a closer look at this, but is the dates behind his first initial adoption at three, and then again at the age of 13, 14. Was it, I've sort of been told, but I haven't confirmed it, but I believe it was around May time, which could explain what happened to Madeleine McCann in May all those years later. 
What I can tell you, Donald, is that his first conviction was in 1992, when at the age of 15, he was convicted of burglary. At that time, he got a short sentence, didn't go to prison, but they did bring up the fact that he was on the radar for sex offences. So at that age, we knew that maybe at 14 or 13, he'd done some naughty things with younger children. That was already sort of in the general ballpark amongst the courts. He wasn't convicted, but must have been some warnings and must have been uh, some tickings off. Certainly the next year, in 1993, he gets eight months in prison for what's described uh, in the courts. I've seen the document here. It says multiple thefts and also driving without a license. Now, at the age of 16, two years before you're allowed to legally drive in Germany, he's stolen presumably a car. So this is already showing a fairly serious degree of criminality, wouldn't you agree? I think what's interesting is that when he's being dealt with as a 15-year-old by the German courts and juvenile courts, which are more progressive even, I would say, than UK courts regarding juveniles now, but back then they were very attuned to the fact it's a juvenile, a young mind, we can't penalise them, put them on the criminal justice system right now. So I'd imagine that their reflections upon his potentiality as a latent sexual predator, as a kid, you're looking at inappropriate touching, exposure, but clearly to have that on the radar, there must have been a constellation of concerns about that, which they were obviously monitoring, but felt didn't cross the line into something egregious like rape or, or anything much more serious. Later on in his 16th year, he was then convicted of two separate sex offences. In that judgment, the judge ruled that there was another misdemeanour that should be taken into account, which was another nine-year-old girl. So it was actually a six-year-old boy that was earlier on, and that was probably when he was around 12 or 13, that he'd taken his trousers down and masturbated in front of this kid, who was only six. Two years later, he grabbed a nine-year-old girl. If you trace this through, it happens all the time. He's outside a park, there's a girl playing, he grabs her, pulls her into the into a bush next to the park. Basically, he has his trousers down, grabs her, grows a sexual gratification and she screamed absolutely screamed and screamed and screamed until he had to let her go and you know obviously lots of people around the area would have heard that and that's how they got him even at that age we're talking 16 years old 1993 the die is cast isn't it really for sexual offences and sexual predators for those who are fixated preferential paedophiles they're only ever caught for a fraction of their offences so so much more offending is not seen not witnessed here disturbingly is an opportunity for child service and the courts to recognise and to engage with somebody, a potentially really serious offender. And when you see the offences and you see his MO, his MO really substantially may have got a little more technologically adept and efficient, but his MO remained exactly the same, sexual gratification, snatching young children. So really, this is a blueprint for the Madeleine McCann case. And I think you touched this earlier, the Germans are more liberal in the way they deal with these kind of offences. And I traced it through that they've tried really hard to deal with him, gave him fairly intensive therapy and really, really tried to get to the bottom of what was causing this. I actually really wanted to speak to the father and mother about it. Well, unfortunately, the father died in 94. The mother, who still lives in the village of Bergtheim, I tracked down and wanted to go and sit down and talk to. And I found her, luckily, got her to open the door, but she just wasn't interested and she hasn't spoken as yet to anyone about that upbringing. But I think you need to ask them what happened. You have to question what happened between the ages of three and 13. Clearly, there was something that wasn't being tackled here, Donald, something quite sinister that must have created this need, as you say, for sexual gratification 
gratification with with younger children. Must be something there to do with sellers that wasn't tackled. Now, at the age of 14, he was sent off to this halfway house. I spoke to a lady who lived right next door to this sort of halfway house. So basically, it's an orphan. You call it an orphanage if you like, but it was only eight bedrooms with two houses next to each other with eight orphans, seven or eight orphans living in it or children that were difficult children from the age of 13 up to 16 or 17. The woman I spoke to next door, amazing fortune, happened to be a child therapist, very well trained, a very charming woman who, who explained that they really worked very, very hard to try and tackle these children's problems. It was clear with Christian that he wasn't able to adapt or it just couldn't somehow latch on to, to what he needed to do to stay on the straight and narrow in this house other orphans who live with him said that he was an absolute terror away he was taking drugs it was a bit too liberal the problem with Germany perhaps a bit too liberal they were like he was able to smoke drugs in the house he was able to steal things he stole the minibus apparently at one point he smashed a glass because someone told him he couldn't have supper because he was late for curfew he threw the glass on a wall a bit of glass smashed landed in one of his fellow orphans eyes so when he actually did get that final sentence for the molestation of two kids the judge quite rightfully said no no this is it now you're now going to a proper juvenile facility at Borstal, if you like, in English. You're going to be sent here. We are going to put you in this and you are going to learn the hard way now. I actually personally think that they worked really hard with him because they gave him a three-year mechanics course. They put him on this training and they they worked really hard to help him. In many ways, if we're talking about Christian Bruckner, the teenage years, we're talking about something where this is the result of his childhood years, his adoption, multiple rejections. So from dysfunctional family to dysfunctional family, if you add up rejection and abuse, and dysfunctionality and suddenly you get this tearaway sexual predator. Now it seems to me the blueprint is set. And it goes on and on, Donald. I mean, when he lived later on in Braunschweig and he ran the kiosk there and all sorts of horrible things were going on, it turns out that one of the boys who was in there because it was a school next door, one of the boys that regularly spent time in his barn and was probably abused at the age of, I think it was 17 or 18, he then got convicted himself of grabbing a two-year-old off the street and taking him up to his apartment and abusing them. That whole cycle continues, doesn't it? Tell us about the kiosk, because the first time we've heard about it, what was the kiosk? What did it sell? Where was it? Christian Bruckner went backwards and forwards to Portugal and through Spain many times. And it was later on in, in 2013 or 14 when he came back to Germany and decided, and this is one of the nightmares of the German authorities, he sort of randomly picked an area that he wanted to live in. And he lived in about five or six different federal areas. And this was one of the areas he, he moved to. One of the things he did was he, he took over the lease of a kiosk, sort of like a bar stroke kiosk that sold alcohol and crisps and sweets. I suppose it's the nearest thing really to a pub, but sold other bits and bobs. And he took over the lease of this from a local family and, and it had an apartment where you could live in next to it. And so he lived there and he had this, this shop. And I think it was the perfect place to groom children because he, he would regularly, children would walk past it every morning on the way to school. And then of course, walk back past it in the evening or afternoon. And he would regularly give sweets to children in fact, the headmaster of the local school said that kids often came in with sweets and he'd ask them where they came from and said, oh yeah, Christian at the kiosk gave them to us. That's where he worked out. He wanted to be for a couple of years and he did have girlfriends there, I think. I'm not sure they were exactly his age. In fact, one of them was I think, 17. So he would have been around 30 at the time or a bit older than 30. But I think it really was an opportunity for him to increase his passion for molestation of children. So to get back on track with our timeline, John, Bruckner is now now in a Borstal facility around the age of 16, and he's been given a two-year sentence. Now, 
Was this to be served in full or was he eligible for early release? It was a two-year sentence and I believe it may have been dropped to 18 months. From around late 16, 17, he is in this hostel, if you like, for, for want of a better word. It's much stricter. The first thing they do is they realise he likes cars. So they get him onto a mechanics course and the idea is a three-year mechanics course. So he would do two of them while inside, then he would continue in his final year and train as a mechanic. Now, I do know that obviously he knew how to drive cars because he nicked them from the age of 16 and was able to drive them around. But he got his driving test. It was four months after his 18th birthday that he got his driving license. By this stage, we now know he's out. He's done his mechanics course, 18, served 18 months. He's not out. He's still living in this uh, juvenile facility, but he's doing driving lessons from the age of 18 when you're legally allowed to have driving lessons in Germany. One assumes after four months, he passed his driving test. And at that point, I believe even within a week, he then drives from Germany to Portugal. And that's with a girlfriend at the time. They were young lovers and they took off. When he was brought back later by the judge to ask him, why did he go down to the Algarve? Why did he go down to Portugal? He just said, uh, we saw the name Lagos on the map. We just thought, well, let's go to Lagos. We thought Lagos would be a really interesting place to go. And that was that. So here's the extraordinary thing. If this random association with this random five-letter word, Lagos, hadn't jumped out, it could have been different Maddie McCann in a different place. Except, except there's one major spanner in the works on that theory, which I agree, he told the judge that. But we have to remember that uh, in the late 90s and through the 90s and into the 2000s, Portugal was described as a paradise for paedophiles in Europe. It was one of the places you could go and get away with all sorts of things. In fact, within a year of Madeleine McCann so you could still look at child pornography on your laptop in a in a bar. I was, I've made this analogy a few times that you could be sitting in a bar restaurant with your children running around and a guy in the corner could be on a laptop looking at child pornography. It's entirely legal. People have accused me of libeling Portugal. Excuse me, but their own country, when they asked in Europe surveys of what people thought about their country and whether or not there was a problem with paedophilia and child pornography. The Portuguese themselves, 70% of them thought that there was a problem with child pornography and it was seen as a paradise for child sex abusers back in the 90s. How do we know that maybe he, he heard from some of his friends in, in the uh, Borstal or before that, that Portugal was a perfect place to go and where you could get away with a lot more that because it was seen as a much more liberal, open country where you know there was definitely big child sex abuse network Works. That comes out in the Casapia case later on. And so started this lifelong association for Bruckner with the Algarve, which of course offers many attractions to the tourist, but to the paedophile, many others. Yes. Yeah, so obviously this first journey at the age of 18 and four months was the start of a lifelong passion and, and love of Portugal for him. And, and we can only guess why it was seen as a paradise for foreigners to come there and, and abuse children. Did he go there knowing that? Or did he go there and just discover it when he arrived? And either way, Donald, that I believe was the start of his connection to networks of paedophiles around the Algarve and indeed across the border in Spain. And that really is where he got away with it for 20 years. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. <laughs>